This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velur, and I'm the paper's senior Asia columnist and an associate editor. In this episode, which is recorded on the 8th of May, I speak with James Crabtree, Executive Director for Asia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which organizes the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. James is a former journalist and a policy analyst. His last job was at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, where he was the Associate Professor of Practice. James, it's a pleasure to have you on Speaking of Asia. Thanks, Rabbi. Great to be here. James, since we spoke about a year ago, before the last Shangri-La Dialogue, in what ways has the security situation changed in Asia? Well, it's got worse, I suppose you'd say, Rabbi. So if you think about the major events of the last period, when we met for the last Shangri-La Dialogue, Russia had already invaded Ukraine, which although not in this region, had clearly had an effect globally on people's perception of the likelihood of major conflict. Uh, And since that time, the critical relationship between the United States and China has worsened and various other relationships in the region, particularly between China and India, have certainly not improved. And you've seen the two sides in a new era of great power competition, namely China on the one side and America and its allies and partners on the other, uh, becoming more combative with one another. And those of us living in Southeast Asia are, as ever, caught in the middle. You know, just after last year's dialogue came U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and that was in August. Since then, the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, seems to have dropped the idea of a Taiwan visit, at least for now. Now, are there any glimmers of hope on the horizon for U.S.-China ties? Oh, I think one should never be too gloomy. The U.S. and China remain very closely integrated with one another economically, and it's always possible that the catastrophic effect of a major power war between the United States and China will, in the end, bring both sides back from the brink, as was true within the original Cold War, when, although there were plenty of opportunities for the United States and the Soviet Union to have a war with one another or via proxies, often they managed not to. And so, in a sense, we're entering an era, the Chinese often say that the West is stuck in a mode of Cold War thinking, but it might be said that we could do with a little bit more Cold War thinking in order to try and work out best how to avoid the gradual slide towards confrontation and conflict. Uh, But that is to look at the the silver lining on the cloud. The cloud is that over the last year since the last Shangri-La Dialogue, that relations between the two major powers have been on a steadily downward trajectory, broken only occasionally by upward blips, normally when the two leaders, President Biden of the United States and President Xi of China, have caused to talk with one another either on the phone or once in person. That would be the other glimmer of hope, which is that when the two men speak, they tend to make things better rather than worse. That's not always true when their lieutenants speak. There have been a number of meetings over the last year in which senior figures from both sides meet, and they emerge in a worse position than they did before they spoke. One example of that would have been at the Munich Security Conference. So I think, in general, things are pretty bad and they've gotten worse, but a gloomier way of looking at it is they could get a lot worse yet. So in that sense, there's a glimmer of hope. Mm -hmm. How bad do you think things could get before they get better eventually? 
Well, I think they could get a lot worse. I mean, in a sense, if you look at the current relationship between the US and China, it's been peaceful for a long time, and their countries are very heavily economically integrated with one another. And therefore, there are lots of different ways in which tensions could deteriorate. In a sense, we're looking down from a fairly high base of cooperation and integration. I, I think what you have to think about are the kind of things that happened in the original Cold War. It isn't very likely, although of course not impossible if you're being very pessimistic about it, to think that we're suddenly going to move from you know a period of reasonable peace and prosperity between the US and China to the kind of military conflict that we've seen between Russia and Ukraine. It's you know not impossible, it's not very likely. What's much more likely is that we're going to see a degradation in relations that will be similar to the original Cold War between the United States and Russia. And so what happened there well, you had a complete lack of cooperation, you had proxy competition, proxy wars. You could think about that uh, in terms of the, the contestation over Ukraine, short of a Chinese invasion, which is what people tend to think about very dramatically. There are lots of other things that could happen. And after the visit of House Speaker Pelosi, which you yourself mentioned in your introduction, people have begun to take much more seriously the kind of things that could happen in terms of economic blockades or other forms of military sparring, which could escalate into outright conflict, but need not start in that way. You know, in China, President Xi has secured a third term at last year's party congress. Do you see any reset in China's policies and strategy since that day? President Xi in his third term is moving quite with quite a degree of confidence, I think, um, and is rolling out a range of new or new-ish initiatives we have the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, uh, both of which are not new in the third term, but are relatively recent. We then have another called the Global Civilization Initiative, which I have to say, I haven't quite worked out what that is. But as is often the case with Chinese foreign policy initiatives, the slogan will often come first and the, the, the flesh on the bones is then added later. That was true with the Belt and Road Initiative. So I, I think China is moving forward on a number of trajectories. It's trying to re-engage with Europe. I think it recognizes that the Ukraine war was not good for Chinese strategic interests because it's pushed the United States and Europe closer together. That's not good for China. So although not terribly successfully, they have been trying to build a few bridges with the Europeans. I think the most significant thing that's going on is that they're attempting to win a popularity contest in the global south. The global south is very skeptical about the Ukraine war and the moralistic European narrative about this being the, the hinge upon which the future of the global order will turn. And so in a sense, you have an almost three-way contest now for the, the good wishes of the global South and their future relationships between the West on the one hand, China secondarily, and then India thirdly. You'll see as chair of the G20, India also views itself as a champion of the global south and, and a lot of its exercise in the as chair of the G20 this year is being pushed in that direction. So I think uh, that those are two ways in which China is trying to develop it, its future policy, in addition to simply building up its military capabilities, which it's been doing over decades. But do you detect any amount of tactical flexibility from Beijing or is it getting harder with its Asian neighbors? I, I don't think I would say that China is becoming across the board more tough with its neighbors. For instance, if you look at Malaysia, the new Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim recently went to Beijing. He was warmly greeted there. He emerged with 
170 billion ringgit worth of investment deals, which is sort of 30 or 40 billion dollars. Most of those, of course, will prove to be illusory, as is often the case with these MOUs. But nonetheless, I think Anwar is very happy with his trip to Beijing. The optics look very good. He got some deliverables. So I, I think there are certainly bilateral issues with a number of countries. Philippines would be an obvious one. But in, I wouldn't say that China is, in a sense, really throwing its weight around everywhere. But I do think it does so in some places. It, it, it certainly is willing to use coercive tools in foreign policy to ensure that its neighbors and other partners understand what its objectives are. But I think the really important thing is not so much how China treats the rest of the world, it's its attitude towards the United States. And the problem that we're stuck in is that both the United States and China view each other as the bad actor here, and neither of them are very willing to compromise. Both of them feel reasonably self-confident, although for different reasons at the moment, they feel like they are the wronged party. The Americans think China is attempting to overturn the regional order and acting in all sorts of ways which are negative to the way the world ought to be run. China thinks the United States is trying to contain its rise economically, for instance, by denying its semiconductors and militarily by ganging up with all of its friends to keep China boxed in. And again, there's some truth to both of those perceptions. But the gist of them is it leaves you in a situation in which neither side is remotely willing to compromise. In actual fact, they're both in a mood to stand up for themselves, and therefore they're more likely to escalate. And that's the real pickle that we're in in the region, that in the very early stages of a period of contestation, neither side particularly wants to compromise. Now, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese of Australia is to deliver your keynote address on June the 2nd. Now, what do you expect to hear from him this year? Well, the Prime Minister has not yet been kind enough to share his thoughts in advance with the IISS. I think, however, Australia has been, in a sense, sharing its thoughts with the region for the last year of his prime ministership been an unusually active period for Australian foreign policy. I mean, firstly, you have the, the two big announcements, namely the second round of AUKUS, which happened a few months ago, and then only in a couple of weeks ago, at the time that we're recording this in early May, there was the release of the Strategic Review of Defence Policy. And the elements of this that are clear is Australia is very worried about China. It's trying to change its defence posture to cope with possible contingencies involving conflict with China. It's spending more money on defense. So in a sense, that's all been quite well telegraphed. Uh, it also has a foreign policy that is, you know, has elements of continuity with its predecessor, but has important new elements. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has been a very active diplomatic force, in particular in reaching out to Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. So I think you'll see that. Um, the other element of Australian policy is, in a sense, trying to balance uh, what I, in an article I wrote for the IISS, call like-minded integration, namely the core group of what we now call the like-minded countries, namely America and its friends, the Quad mostly, but also to some degree the Europeans. Australia is building much better ties with all of them. So Japan, India, uh, the United States in particular, but, but also the Republic of Korea, Germany, France, the United Kingdom. Um, and they're doing that mostly because they're worried about China and they realize they can't manage the rise of China on their own. So they have to work more closely together. So Australia is doing that. But on the other hand, it also wants to send a signal to countries like Southeast Asia that it's not, to use a, a derogatory phrase, the, the deputy sheriff, meaning the America's um, bag carrier in the Pacific region, it wants to offer reassurance that Australia wants to be a constructive long-term partner. So Albanese, as 
with previous times in which Australian prime ministers have come to Southeast Asia has a balancing act. He wants to talk about the state of the region. He wants to explain why Australia is taking the actions that it's taking in terms of the moves like AUKUS. But he also wants to offer some reassurance to the region that conflict is not inevitable and Australia will be doing what it can to avoid that happening. James, you just mentioned continuity Albanese policies with the predecessor government. Now, you, were you surprised that a Labour government should have come this far with AUKUS? Uh, after all, it was an idea that the Australians pushed and thought by the Conservatives. I don't think I was. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of admitting when you are surprised in foreign policy because there is a, there is a tendency amongst foreign policy prognosticators never to admit that they were surprised and always to say that they were extremely wise and they saw whatever happened coming long in advance. So I do think that often happens. There are lots of surprising things that happen in foreign policy, but I don't think the ALP being reasonably tough on defense is one of them, both in the United Kingdom and in Australia. The ALP often seeks to have quite a conventional, tough-minded approach to defense policy, and Minister Miles is doing that. There was a good degree of cross-party support for AUKUS. That remains the case. I mean, it's not universal. There are some voices in Australia who think AUKUS is far too expensive and in the end may run into all sorts of bureaucratic problems, but they're fairly marginal. There's a strong consensus about this. The challenge for an Australian Labour government is normally simply that they have different spending priorities, as in a government that is more on the centre-left than the centre-right also wants to spend money on things like more generous welfare entitlements in order to help people who are at the bottom of the income uh, ladder. And so that sets up a, a competitive relationship with defence. The IISS projects a very sharp increase in Australian defence expenditure over the coming period, not quite as sharp as Japan, where defence expenditure is going to double, nonetheless much higher than historical norms over the last couple of decades. So Australia will be spending more money on defence, but it's also made a lot of commitments. I mean, these nuclear submarine and nuclear-powered submarines on their own are incredibly expensive. And so they're going to have to spend at least as much as they promised and probably more. And that will be challenging for Minister Miles when he himself also comes to the Shangri-La Dialogue in early June. Do you know, last year when we met, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was top of mind for everybody. And as you mentioned to me in our podcast, you know, this sort of implied the overlaying of the Euro-Atlantic issues with the Indo-Pacific. Now, a year later, how far has this mixing and merging of theatres moved forward? The primary effect of the war in Ukraine will be felt in Europe. And I think you have to start from, from that position, and it will be felt mostly by European countries. But there are a range of ways in which it is felt in this part of the world. I mean, threat perceptions around our region have risen in part because of Ukraine. They are a contributing factor to decisions amongst various militaries to, to spend more, modernize their, their forces. It has also brought uh, a potential conflict in Taiwan into sharper relief. There are geopolitical implications. I mean, the relationship between Russia and China is probably the most important given Russia is in various ways an, an actor in this part of the world in terms of arms sales and, and things like that. And it, it, it has brought together more closely uh, what we now call the AP4, which is the Asia-Pacific countries that are part of NATO in an observing capacity, namely Australia, uh, well, Australia, for instance, and also the Republic of Korea. So I think there are a range of ways in which the conflict is having 
ramifications in this part of the world and in which countries in this part of the world are becoming more involved uh, in the conflict. And that's also been true uh, here in Singapore, as Singapore has tried to calibrate its own position in terms of sanctions and commentary on the passage of the war. Would you say the uh, Russian relationship has tightened in in the years since we had the last Shangri-La? I suppose I think it has, although I don't think that Beijing is entirely happy about this. So you did see President Xi relatively recently go to Moscow. He didn't do a great deal for Vladimir Putin, but simply in turning up, he provided a lot of legitimacy through the kind of pomp and circumstance. My intuition, although we don't know this for a fact, because it's very hard to find out exactly what the thinking of the inner sanctum in Beijing is, my thinking is that China views the Ukraine war less as a strategic opportunity and more as a headache to be managed. It's obviously very problematic for some of China's most public and principled positions, namely non-interference in the internal affairs of other states, which has long been a mantra. China has found itself awkwardly backed into a corner of feeling that it has to support an almost indefensible position, given it's absolutely clear that Russia is the aggressor and is interfering in the internal affairs of another sovereign state. And China has sort of had to elide over this because it feels its strategic interest is to make sure that Vladimir Putin doesn't lose this war, because that would be very difficult from China's point of view, because it would hand a a clear victory to the United States and to the Europeans. And so China has somewhat reluctantly, I think, come around to the idea that it has to help Putin. But it also is doing this only to a limited degree. It has not yet crossed the the red line of providing weapons to Russia, which about a month or two ago, there was a lot of commentary about this. The Americans seem to have some intelligence which suggested that that was at least a possibility. The threat here is that not so much that China is going to provide the Russians with high-tech drones, which was what the reporting talked about. The real threat is China has massive amounts of commodity munitions, bullets and artillery rounds sort of lying around in warehouses around around the country. And if they decided to give some of that to Russia, it means Russia could spin out the war for much longer. And that would be enormously damaging to both Ukraine, but also those supporting Ukraine and trying to bring things to a conclusion in Ukraine's direction. So that, that's what's going on there. China hasn't taken that step. And so China is trying to strike a balance between what it sees as its strategic interest in not um, coming to a situation in which the West is ultimately seen to have prevailed in a contest against Russia, and indeed a situation in which a new Russian president might replace Vladimir Putin, and that may be a Russian president that is much less warm towards China's interests. So China is calculating its interests, but I don't think that people who go around saying, you know, China sees this as an enormous strategic opportunity are probably right. I think China rather wishes that Putin hadn't done this, and it has messed up a lot of things that China was trying to do, not least building more positive relationships with the Europeans in order to try and gently wedge apart the Europeans from the Americans. James, you just brought up the Asia-Pacific Fall and NATO. And today, there's talk that NATO is about to open a liaison office in Japan. That's for starters. Where do you see that relationship going? Are we Should we expect... NATO to be present here in Asia in a much bigger way? And is NATO coming to your conference? Yes, NATO will come to our conference. I should say, I'm not being coy about this, we don't tend to comment on who's coming in detail until just before the event in which we then when we publish this. So 
I won't say who, it won't be the Secretary General because the Secretary General doesn't tend to come to Shangri-La Dialogue because it's very close to the full NATO summit, which happens about one month later, and the Secretary General is therefore traveling around Europe. But NATO will be represented at a very senior level. That's not unusual. I wouldn't take that as a sign of anything in particular. They do tend to come, as do a large number of other international organizations like the Pacific Island Forum or the International Committee of the Red Cross the ASEAN Secretariat, a range of different international organizations that come to the Shangri-La Dialogue. Uh, however, I think NATO is feeling its way in Asia. I don't think that you are going to see NATO setting up here in a big way in any conceivable current situation. But I do think that there are countries in this part of the world, particularly those four nations, that went to the NATO summit and which see value in developing closer partnerships. So that's Japan, the Republic of Korea, New Zealand and Australia. Those are the countries that in one form or another have been more forward leaning in offering support for Ukraine, probably with Australia at the top of that list and the Republic of Korea at the bottom in terms of the size of their contribution. So those four countries are interested in building closer ties with NATO for a whole range of reasons. And NATO He's trying, as a lot of other countries in the Euro-Atlantic theatre are, trying to work out, well, what role do we play in the future back and forth with China? So I think NATO could become more prominent. I think there might be particular initiatives. I think NATO will seek to understand more closely what's happening in this part of the world, largely because this part of the world, as it becomes more important, will have more spillover effects for the core area of NATO's operation in the Euro-Atlantic theater. And you'll also see countries in this region trying to engage more closely with NATO, in part because they're, they're curious. They want to see what the NATO members are up to. I mean, to some degree, NATO remains the gold standard of military operations. When a country like Finland joins NATO, it has already quite an advanced military. But when a country, there are other countries that have joined that have to go through a, a process of improving their militaries so that they can come up to NATO standards. And NATO standards are, because they're led by the most advanced militaries in the world, in terms of joint operations, meaning those operations which involve either various different countries or different branches of the military within them, NATO is very advanced and it's being tested in terms of its support in Ukraine and its knowledge about Ukraine, which is at the very frontier of modern warfare. So there's a lot of interest in, you know, what's NATO learning about this? What's it learning about cyber? What's it learning about space and satellites? What about long range strike capabilities? Something that a lot of countries in this part of the world are interested in, which the IISS is doing research on. So I think there's a range of ways in which people are going to be interested in talking to NATO and understanding what it's doing. But the notion that NATO is somehow going to kind of set up in the Indo-Pacific and start coordinating the balancing of China, I mean, I think that's, um, that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. What about India, that, which, which is a country that you know so well? Are Sino-Indian troubles a standalone issue or do they form part of a wider pattern of Chinese ties with key Asian powers and neighbors? I, I think, Ravi, the answer is a little bit of both. So the Sino-Indian relationship and its deterioration over recent years, and in particular following the clashes in the Himalayas a couple of years ago, has unique characteristics and a very long history. On the other hand, it's deeply wound up in everything that we are talking about. So it has implications 
uh, which spill over from the Ukraine war. Part of the reason why India, at least in public, wasn't willing to condemn Russia over Ukraine is to do with the fact that it imports a lot of weapons from Russia and it doesn't like the idea of Russia and China becoming too close to one another because then if China and India ended up having a war, as they very nearly did a couple of years ago, then Russia could, in theory, cut off all of India's weapons and that would leave India in a very difficult position. So India has a deeply strategic reason for worrying about the Russia-China relationship. But India is also part of this grouping that is trying to work collectively to figure out how do you manage the rise of China. So it's a member of the Quad, most obviously, and it is developing much closer military ties with the United States, Japan, and Australia, albeit not under the banner of the Quad, but at a bilateral level. And I think one of the things that people have misunderstood completely about the last year is India's relationship with these countries after Ukraine. In a sense, it's a case of watch what India does, not what India says. Foreign Minister Jayashankar is an absolute past master at finding ways to poke the Europeans in particular in the eye and accusing them gently of being hypocritical or having double standards, and quite rightly so in some cases. I mean, India has a complicated colonial history where it has plenty of reasons to feel that it wasn't well treated and the Europeans themselves are by no means sort of paragons of consistency. But if you look at what India is doing, it's getting much closer to the United States, getting much closer to Australia and Japan and the European countries as well, even while it is accusing them occasionally of hypocrisy over Ukraine. It's India getting closer to NATO? Not as far as I'm aware. I mean, certainly not to the extent of the other, the other countries. I'm sure that NATO does have bilateral uh, ties with, with India. I mean, it will have with all significant nations, but India isn't normally talked of as being part of that group. India didn't go to the NATO summit, but India is building diplomatic military ties with all of these countries. And the reason why it's doing that is because of China. You know, fundamentally, India judges that China is the greatest threat to its status as the dominant power in South Asia. That's true on the land border in the, up in the Himalayas, but it's also true in the Indian Ocean, particularly the eastern portion of the Indian Ocean, where China is becoming much more active. India doesn't like that. And, and the only way that it has to respond, I mean, it is trying to build up its own domestic economic and military capabilities, but that's a long haul journey and one where India is miles behind. And to some degree, China is actually accelerating away from India in terms of its capabilities because it's such a larger economy. The only option India really has is what the international relation theorists call external balancing, which is making friends with other people and getting them to help you along. And that's exactly what India is doing. Final question, James. I wrote a piece recently saying that jobs could be the next national security issue for many countries. Is the world starting to think of artificial intelligence and robotics and machine learning as issues that need to be addressed at global levels? And do you think the IISS could at some point come to look at it yourself? The IISS is immensely interested in artificial intelligence. In fact, it's a topic that I talk about more than many others in my role as the head of the office here in Singapore. We do have a session at the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is looking in the military domain at cyber and technological competition and artificial intelligence is a big part of that. If you look at something like the US rules trying to ban semiconductors going to China or advanced semiconductors, ultimately that's really about artificial intelligence or to some important degree it is that the Americans are worried that China will develop AI capabilities which in the military domain could then substantially tip the battlefield. So think of 
fighter jets that are controlled by AI. It's a bit futuristic at the moment, but in a decade, it's not it's, it's possible. And already, the evidence suggests that fighter planes that are have AI capabilities will be vastly better than a human pilot in the same way that an AI-driven chess machine is much better than a human. So if you're the first country who can develop AI-powered planes, well, that's it. It's all game over. You dominate the skies in any battlefield. So it's not complicated. The Americans know that, and therefore they are trying to deny China the semiconductors and also the equipment to make semiconductors to allow them that kind of capacity. So AI, although it's a bit theoretical, Within 10 to 20 years, this could be absolutely the core of the military balance in the region and something that's of enormous significance to countries like Singapore, because these technological revolutions in military affairs can, in a sense, as happened when the Americans overtook the Soviet Union, when people weren't really expecting it. A lot of that was to do with American technological capability. So I think it is enormously important. Your question of jobs is an interesting one. If you mean in the sense of artificial intelligence replacing jobs for middle-class workers, I don't think that's as likely in the medium term. In a funny way, at the moment, we're in a situation in which jobs are going to become important in a different way. If you look at something like AUKUS, part of the reason why that's so popular is that increases in defense expenditure tend to require making things. Making things requires factories. And so AUKUS, the political economy of AUKUS makes sense because there are jobs to go around in Australia, the United Kingdom, and America, and that's very popular. And as we enter an era in which there's a lot more money spent on defense, initially in the United States and China, but also countries like Australia and Japan are rearming, and, and I think countries in Southeast Asia, although they're not doing this at the moment, will begin over time to spend more on their defense. I think it's almost inevitable given the environment. And part of the reason they will be able to justify this is that spending more money on defense tends to involve creating jobs because you need to make missiles and tanks. And that is sort of part of the politics of an era of a degree of rearmament. So I think your intuition about jobs playing a greater role in the kind of contemporary defense realm is actually exactly right, although maybe not perhaps for the reasons that you were hinting at. James, thank you for coming and speaking of Asia. Thank you so much. And if any of your listeners are interested, the Shangri-La Dialogue begins on Friday, the 2nd of June, and it's all on the record. You can watch it on the internet. So all of the speeches and all the talks are, are there. So eager Straits Times readers and readers of your column in particular can pay attention. We're very grateful to anyone who'd like to come and watch what's happening. Wonderful. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by the Straits Times Asian Insider Channel. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. And if you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast show notes below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A W E D I O.